Well, today we uh, continue to move through this magnificent book of Ephesians. And we come now to Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians. And uh, it's both a wonderfully instructive passage, but also a soul-enriching passage. And helps us to know something about how God may want us to pray for our church in our day. Uh, Christians have always, of course, affirmed the central place of prayer for both the individual and for the community of faith. Prayer is that exercise by which we have communion or relational interaction with God. George MacDonald was asked once, why do we need to pray if God loves us and knows what we need before we ask? And George MacDonald replied this, what if he, what if God knows that prayer is the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all of our smaller and lower needs lie in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond other needs. Prayer is the beginning of that communion. Communion with God. But there's also the added dynamic of power, the effectiveness of prayer. Prayer is a means by which God accomplishes his work. Later in Ephesians, Paul will apparently identify prayer as one of the two weapons by which the church does battle with the spiritual forces of evil that threaten the unity of the church. The other weapon being the word of God, the sword of the spirit. The book of James says that the prayer of a righteous man has great power. So by prayer, we draw near to God. By prayer, we bring his power to bear in our lives and in the world to accomplish his purposes. Prayer is so key, so central, so vital to us. And yet, don't we often find prayer difficult? Often because we find ourselves not knowing how to pray. Don't know what to pray for. And I pray for our church and have done so for almost 10 years. Many of you have prayed longer than that for us. And currently, many of us feel the need to pray even more urgently for the church. This passage in Ephesians chapter 1 shows us what we can be praying for our church. Uh, up to this point, to verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul has been almost gushing in his expressions of praise and awe at what what God has done in bringing us to himself. Blessed be, the God, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, he says. Choosing us for adoption as his children. Forgiving our sins. Redeeming us through the blood of Christ. And so on. Now he prays for the Ephesians. That they would grow in their understanding and experience of these blessings. Of their life in Christ. It's great what God has accomplished for us in Christ to bring us to himself as his children. But it is life transforming for his people to continually grow in our understanding and experience of what that means. God has done wonderful things, but it changes us if we grow in our understanding of that. So let's look at this passage now together. Uh, before expressing his prayers for the Ephesians, Paul expresses his thanks for them. He's just talked about their faith in verses 13 and 14. You, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is, in Jesus, by whose blood 
They were adopted and forgiven and brought into God's family, verses 3 to 8. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now he thanks God for that faith. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. It was a faith in Christ responding to the word of truth that they had heard, but it was a faith coupled with a love for all the saints, as all true faith is. In the scriptures, God's commands to love and care for each other, for the poor, and so on, is almost exclusively set in the context of God's people. The Israelites of the Old Testament were called to care for the poor among them. The saints in the New Testament were and are called to love and care for one another. And the idea is that our love for one another would be so powerful, so compelling, that it would cause others to be drawn Christward and thus become participants in the love of this community of Christ. Of course, we are called to love others as well. But the biblical emphasis is on loving the saints. Loving the body of Christ, the people of God. Love one another, Jesus said, John 13. Elsewhere, he talks about our acts of love to the least of these brothers of mine, he calls them. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, said Peter. John Kelvin said of this passage in Ephesians, Love ought to embrace all men. But here the saints are particularly mentioned because love, when properly regulated, begins with them and afterward is extended to all others. <coughs> Excuse me. Faith in Christ, love for his people are inseparable. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, the scripture says. And the Ephesians lived this reality, and somehow Paul heard of it. Paul would occasionally receive reports from some of the churches that he had founded, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, for example. So Paul now hears about the Ephesians, their faith and their love, and he gives thanks to God for them. And then his thanksgiving prompts him also to pray, to intercede, to ask God for things on their behalf. <coughs> I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, he says. This is a great balance in the life of prayer, I think. Thank you, Lord, for what is good in the church. We pray, O oh Lord, for your help where we fall short. But what does it look like to intercede with God for the church? I don't think that we can ever do better in our prayers than to pray the scriptures, to pray the words of God himself for the church. And this passage in Ephesians is one of the great passages that we can go to repeatedly when we need help to know how to pray. What Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians is the very thing that we can pray for our church, Thornhill Baptist. And so, as is always the case, this 2,000-year-old sacred text becomes a living, active word, still speaking with power to our context in our day. So what does Paul pray, then, for the Ephesians? 
Now, when I've always read this passage, and even this week when I was studying to prepare for this morning, I always thought that Paul prayed four things for the Ephesians, that they would know God, that they would know the hope that God has called them to, that they would know the riches of what God has blessed them with, and that they would know God's power. But it was on Friday just this week that it suddenly struck me that Paul is really only praying one thing for the Ephesians. Now, he wants them to know these four things. He wants them to grow in their understanding and their experience of these four things. But there is one thing that is needed first so that these four things can happen. What is the one thing that he prays for? Well, he puts it in two ways. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that they would have the eyes of their heart enlightened. What the Ephesians need is for God to open their eyes, to give them understanding, to give them perspective, to give them the ability to see spiritual reality. In short, the ability to see as God sees. Paul routinely prays this kind of thing. At the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, he will pray that they have the strength not to experience, not to feel, but to comprehend the love of Christ. For the Philippians, he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment or in depth of insight. For the Colossians, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Such knowledge is impossible without revelation. We cannot attain to God's wisdom. It can only be given. And I was thinking that this morning as we were singing, because I had this message on my brain. As we were singing about the love, the presence, the mercy, the grace of God, what Christ has done for us on the cross, we cannot... We can't see it. We can't get it unless God reveals it to us. Even this morning. We can come and we can sing. We can say the words and we can prepare. But unless the eyes of our hearts are open, we cannot really know the reality of God and what he has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 reveals how the wisdom of the world utterly fails in coming to any real spiritual understanding. There the scripture says, these things God has revealed to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. And if we are ever to know the thoughts of God, the truths of God, only God's spirit can reveal that. We can never get there. God can only give it to us. So now in Ephesians 1, Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Some Bibles, and probably the NIV, translates it, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, meaning the Holy Spirit of God. And that, I think, is good. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that he was the spirit of truth. 
who would teach you all things. When Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus, he said that the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And conversely, those who are far from God, Ephesians says, are still in the futility, what does it say, of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. In other words, we would say they don't get it. The devil blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. <clears throat> but if the spirit of any person becomes a spirit of wisdom, if there's any understanding of the gospel of Christ, it will be the direct work of the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul prays this for the Ephesians, and we would do well to pray this for our church. God, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation. Enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see as you see. Understand things from your perspective, no longer blinded or clouded by sin or by self or by worry or by busyness. That's what Paul asks for, for the Ephesians. That's what we ask for, for our church. And Paul asks this with certain things in mind. And those are the four things that I mentioned earlier. First, he prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Or so that they would know God better. Now this includes, of course, knowledge about God. For a right understanding of the truths of God is impossible unless the spirit reveals God and enables a person to grasp the truth. But it has more to do with the knowledge of God himself, personal acquaintance with him, relationship with him. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said on this passage, if theology, knowledge about God, is impossible without divine revelation, how much more so is that acquaintance with God himself, of which the apostle speaks here? And isn't that the most important thing? Thornhill Baptist Church, I pray that we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order that we might know God. Jesus defined eternal life this way. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. J.I. Packer, um, in this incredible book, Knowing God, which is a great companion book to the book of Ephesians, even though it's about a hundred times as long, he uses this analogy. He pictures persons sitting on the high front balcony of a Spanish house, watching travelers go by on the road below. The balconiers can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist at all or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But they are onlookers, and their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical. Problems of which way to go and how to make it. Problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action too. 
And balconiers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems differ. Thus, for example, in the relation to evil, the balconier's problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how evil can consist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the traveler's problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. Or again, in relation to sin, the balconier asks whether racial sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible. While the traveler, knowing sin from within, asks what hope there is of deliverance. Or take the problem of the Godhead. While the balconier is asking how one God can conceivably be three, what sort of unity three could have, and how three who make one can be persons, the traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust towards the three persons who are now together at work to bring him out of sin and to glory. And so on. There's a difference between the knowledge about God, looking over and thinking about the territory of God, and the knowledge of God, walking with God down the road that God wants to travel with us. In Jeremiah chapter 31, when God prophesied this new thing that God was going to do in his people, he said, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. God's new covenant, God's great plan is to bring people into the personal acquaintance and knowledge of himself. And we as a church, we have said that we exist for the twin purposes of knowing Christ and making him known. Six words that define who we are and what we do. But how hard is it in practice as a church, as any church... To do those things, to know Christ. And out of that, to be able to truly make him known to people. Pray that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we will know God deeply and increasingly and better than we do. Paul prayed it for the Ephesians. I'm not sure there's any better thing that we can pray for ourselves this morning. Paul also prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is a forward-looking, future-oriented reality. We often look backward in our faith. We see that we have been forgiven, that we have been saved from our sins. And rightly so. We center ourselves on the cross of 2,000 years ago and what happened then. But we are called to look forward. There is a hope to which we have been called. The Bible speaks of the crown of life, of the glory that awaits and that far outweighs the trials of our life. The Bible talks about the redemption of all creation. The Bible talks about our, our waiting for the appearance of the Lord Jesus when finally we will see him as he is. Colossians chapter 1, I love this verse, speaks of the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the reality of Christ in us is a hope thing. It's a future thing. That Christ in us means that, that when God brings all things to a close, the consummation of all things, the scripture says we will be like him. And God is moving us forward, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel. That will come to full fruition in the future. 
And when we know the hope to which we have been called, we live differently in the present. When we cannot look forward, we're bound to a right now, this world perspective. We're caught up in materialism and, and stuff and comfort. We see only the trials and the pain. We're only conscious of the crisis and the uncertainty. But when we know the hope to which we have been called, we see the world, we see our lives, not just in a different perspective, but in a right perspective. And remember that this is all fleeting. It's temporary. On the scales of eternity, this is dust. All the stuff that we pursue, all the stuff that we collect, all the stuff that we worry about. It's dust. Now we, in truth, we live in hope all the time. We, we enter school with the hope of a future and a job. We enter a job with the hope of creating a certain kind of life, providing for the people that we care about. We raise kids with the hope of someday seeing functional adults. But why, I wonder, do we seldom think of our faith in terms of hope? And we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened and opened so that we can live our life accordingly. It is this hope that enables us to live our life well in the present. Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. In other words, Paul says one of the marks of a mature person of faith is that they're looking forward. They're seeing the goal of the call on their life. They're, they're living heavenward. We need our eyes open to know the hope of this call of God on our lives. And third, he prays that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, the eyes of their hearts enlightened, so that they will know the riches of the inheritance that is theirs in Christ Jesus. The blessings, he calls them in the early part of chapter 1. Jesus said that, that he came that we might have life to the full. Isn't a full life a rich life? Not a materially rich life. Phil Calloway has a book called Making life rich without any money. The richness of our inheritance is not necessarily a material thing, but a fullness of life. Jesus talked about, sorry, Paul talks about the glory of heaven to come. C.S. Lewis writes about a kid in the inner city who's making mud pies in a puddle and cannot understand what you mean when you invite him to a vacation at the seaside. And sometimes we're making mud pies in our lives and we do not know the riches of the inheritance that is ours. We do not know our future in Christ and our future in heaven and all that God wants to do in us and for us. But also we don't know the riches of our presence. Sometimes we focus too much on the sacrifice of following Jesus. But do we really understand that we have become children of God? Do we really feel like as Christians we've traded up? Or is our perspective that we need to face the downer of being a Christian right now in order to share of the joy in eternity later? 
I would suggest that the joy is for now. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. God, open our eyes to see how good this good news really is. Not that life is easy. We know that it's not. Mary Lou just shared with us how even, even at a hospital bedside, not sure if her husband would live, that she had the overwhelming sense of not just the presence, but the goodness of God. That is what we need our eyes opened to. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then fourthly, to be able to see God's power at work in us. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And Paul says something extraordinary, not just God acting on our behalf, but that this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If we're thinking biblically, the supreme demonstration of the love of Christ, the love of God for us is the cross, the death of Christ. The supreme demonstration of the power of God is the empty tomb. It's the resurrection of Christ. But God exerted power not just in raising Christ from the dead, but then further exalting Jesus to God's own right hand, the place of honor and authority, and gave to Jesus authority over all things. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power has made his son Jesus Christ Lord over all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And God has put all things under his feet. This is the eternal and cosmic reality around which we gather every week as God's people, that Jesus is Lord. And one day, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. This is what God has done in the exercise of his power, and that same power is toward us. God directs it in our direction. Do we think that our circumstances are too great to be overcome? Do we think that God is unable to keep us, but that we will somehow yet do something that will cause God to let us go? Do we think that after praying for this church for so long that God is somehow going to let us die? Do we think even that what we are experiencing in these days is not part of God's answer? I believe that God is bringing us to a place as a church once again where we ask, what really matters here? What is of the kingdom? What does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God? God's power is for us. He exercises it for us, even right now, in our church, in your life. We just need our eyes open to see it. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know it. Do you want to know how to pray for Thornhill Baptist Church? 
pray that God would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, enlightened. Pray that we would be able to see as God sees, that we would see ourselves individually, that we would see our sin, but also see how great God's grace is for us, that we would see the people around us as God sees, the people within the body of Christ, then we will forgive all and love well. That we would be able to see the people around us in our community and our city and even to see the world as God sees it. There's a great story in the Old Testament of a prophet, Elisha, who's holed up in a city and an enemy nation, their army, has come to get him, one man, they surround the city, and Elisha's servant wakes up and kind of looks over the wall and sees this army and says, oh my goodness, Elisha, look at this. We're in trouble. There's a whole army surrounding the city. And Elisha simply prays, Lord, open his eyes. And then he sees the army around the city, and then around that army, he sees another army. Angels, the army of God. And Elisha knows we're not in danger here. But his servant couldn't see it. He needed his eyes open. Pray that we would have our eyes opened to see as God sees so that we will know God better. So that we will know the hope to which God has called us. So that we will know the riches of what is ours in Christ. And so that we will know God's immeasurable, great word, immeasurable power toward us, because only then can we live fully, live rightly. Only then can we be the church that God calls us to be. Only then can we make a difference in our community and in our world. Only then can we love the saints. And only then can we have the joy that is the mark of the people of Jesus Christ. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want not only to see you, certainly that, but to see also what you see, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Nick's going to come and, uh, and lead us now as we pray. Let's join together in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe into our prayers your breath of life. Come, Holy Spirit, fan the flame of love within us and draw us into the life of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, Renew us and revive us that in our worship and in our living, we may live a life of love for the praise and glory of God. Spirit of God, you are the breath of creation, the wind of change that blows through our lives, opening us up to new dreams, new hopes, 
new life in Jesus Christ. Forgive us, God, that we have not focused on knowing you. Forgive us that religion has, been, has become more important than you. Forgive us our closed minds, which barricade themselves against new ideas, preferring the past to what you might want to do through us tomorrow. And God, forgive us our closed eyes, which fail to see the needs of your world and the needs of the very people among us. They're blind to opportunities of service and love. Forgive us our closed eyes. God, forgive us as well our closed hands, which clutch our gifts and our wealth for our use alone. And God, forgive us our closed hearts. Spirit of new life, forgive us and break down the prison walls of our selfishness that we might be open to your love and open for the service of your world. Loving God, open our minds that we might experience your resurrection and transformation. Open our hearts that we may feel the breath and play of your spirit. Lord, unclench our hands that we may reach out one to another. Open our lips that we may drink in the delight and wonder of your love. Unstop our ears to hear the agony, to hear your agony in our inhumanity. And God, open our eyes so that we may see Christ in friend and stranger. Breathe your spirit into us. Breathe your spirit into us and touch our lives with the life of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.